Amy feels like cancer has been in her life forever. Her mom was first diagnosed with breast cancer when Amy was 12 years old. After successful chemo and radiation treatments, her mom was cancer-free for 20 years. A third diagnosis of cancer had a much different outcome. If you are enjoying the podcast, can you please go to the show and leave a rating and review? This is episode 40 of season two, and I am so damn proud. I'd really appreciate it. And now, Amy's story. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, I have with me Amy, and I already told her that ah, I just sign a little sigh of happiness that her name is Amy because that's my sister's name. And so uh, I already feel a connection to Amy, Um, but we connected over Instagram, I think just through commenting on some posts here and there. And then I said, hey, would you be interested in sharing your story? And she said, yes. So here we are. Um, I am going to turn the mic over to Amy and let her introduce herself and then tell us her story. And then I will come back and Amy and I will have a conversation about some of the things she's learned since then and that she um, would like to to share with everybody who's listening today. So thanks so much for being here, Amy. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Beth. Um, uh, Yeah, so I'm Amy and (laughs) um, I'm really happy to be here. Um, I was uh, saying to Beth earlier that um, any opportunity that I can take to talk about my mom and uh, the type of woman that she was, um, I will jump at it, um, anyone that wants to to listen. Um, And I also think it's really important to share our stories with each other. Um, We can be from every corner of the world, um, losing moms at childhood through elder years, and we still have this bond with each other um, that nobody else quite understands. Um, So, I lost my mom 10 years ago um, from cancer. And, um, you know, looking back, uh, I feel I actually have lived with cancer in my life for quite a long time. She was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 12. Um, And, you know, this was back in the 90s. There were not a lot of developments in cancer treatment yet, but she thankfully uh, was able to overcome uh, with chemo and radiation and surgery. um, And she was cancer free for roughly 20 years. Um, And around 20, no, 2007, I suppose, um, she got sick again. And, you know, we kind of didn't really understand how cancer worked. We, We thought once you were cured, you were cured, and that was it. Um, and it actually was a recurrence of breast cancer and it absolutely rocked me and, um, my sister, um, and dad just kind of on our knees. We didn't, we didn't know, you know, what does this mean? It come, it came back and now it's stage four and, you know, uh, the doctors were like, we need to start chemo immediately and bring her into the hospital and have her, you know, she had a pleural effusion from all the fluid. And so, you know, me and my sister are Googling, what does that mean? Plural effusion usually means you're going to die within a few months. And uh, so we just really uh, scared ourselves a lot with that. And, you know, thankfully, uh, the type of breast cancer she had was treatable by a hormone um, blocker. Um, So she was on an estrogen blocker. It was a pill she took once a day. 
and she had no side effect, no side effects. And she walked out of the hospital, like nothing happened. And so we just couldn't believe our luck that she um, got the second chance and we got the second chance with her. Um, I will say, you know, going back to my younger years, um, I was incredibly close with my mother. Um, like the type of when mom drops you off at school for kindergarten, um, you, you know, rip her clothes off as she's trying to walk out the door. Um, I very codependent on each other and I had major separation anxiety for a long time. So when she got sick, um, this anxiety that I had just was like next level because what was I going to do when she really was gone? Like, not like, oh, I'll see you when I get out of school gone, but gone, gone. Um, and, you know, I was in my late 20s at the time, but I still felt like a, a little kid. Um, so anyway, we, you know, overcame that she was living, quote unquote, living with stage four breast cancer, but it was managed and she was doing quite well. Um, and, uh, one summer about four years after she started her medication for the breast cancer, um, her dentures started to slip. Um, and we just thought, you know, it's been about 10 years since you got your dentures, you've had, you know, some, you know, your gums shift and change as you get older, maybe you just need to get a new set. And she went to the dentist and they found a lesion on her gum and they wanted to biopsy it. And, um, you know, she was terrified. She didn't want to tell me about it. She was avoiding my phone calls because <laughs> um, she didn't really want to confront it, but also didn't want to have to deliver news to me. But uh, I knew I knew something was up. And so she biopsied it and it came back uh, squamous cell um, carcinoma, so oral oral cancer. And um, it was quite small. The doctors were very optimistic. This is caught early. It's a 90% cure rate. We'll just cut it out and you'll be fine. Um, and over the course of the three weeks between biopsy and surgery, it had like, you know, maybe tripled in size. It was probably one of the most stressful and troubling three weeks of our lives um she you know it would bleed and it hurt and she couldn't wear her teeth so she was self-conscious of that and she couldn't really eat normally and she was terrified what is happening in my mouth with it getting bigger and bigger does this mean you know you're gonna have to take my you know my whole face essentially you know um so we go in and see the doctor before the surgery and he's like, oh yeah, we can still take this out. No problem. And, you know, she's tearful. Am I going to be able to talk? Am I going to be able to eat? You know, what is, and he was just very nonchalant and was like, we got this, this is what we do. Um, and they did, <laughs> they did. Um, it was a 12 hour surgery. Um, they had to take her cheekbone and her soft palate and they rebuilt the roof of her mouth with skin graft from her arm and her leg. Um, when she woke up, she was in wrist restraints because she was trying to pull her tubes. They had to put a trach in 
because of all the swelling in her face and you know uh, she was in the ICU for a week and it was um pretty pretty ugly stuff um <laughs> I was the you know the typical overbearing daughter that called the ICU in the middle of the night for updates I was in the waiting room waiting for them to let me in when you can only visit for a half hour at a time um and when she got moved to the step down unit, I was able to sleep over and I, I stayed up with her at night. She couldn't sleep. You know, it was doctors coming in every five minutes to take vital signs and draw blood. And I very vividly remember the last night that I slept in the hospital with her. Um, she was in the chair upright sitting because she had so much drainage from her yeah from the fluids and I was in the bed <laughs> and we finally both fell asleep around four in the morning and I woke up to morning rounds with a team of med students and doctors around the bed looking at me as if I was the patient and I was you know you know when you get startled awake my heart was in my throat I was like what do you you know her and I'm like pointing at the chair um it was it was actually really funny but I was just like you guys are smarter than this you that you <laughs> that you would be you know looking at me like I'm the patient and she, you know she has staples in her neck like obviously she's she's the one you need to to look at um anyway so while she was in the hospital um they ran pathology on her um, you know, the specimen from her surgery. And while they said they had clear margins, there was extension in her lymph nodes. And that was enough to buy her chemo and radiation. And so um, six weeks after surgery, when her face, mouth, and neck had, had healed, they started chemo and radiation together. Um, and um, you know, she had been through chemo and radiation before with the breast cancer. She's like, I got this, you know, I, it wasn't a party, but she did it before and she was pretty optimistic she was gonna be okay. But when you have radiation to your mouth, it's a whole different story. So, um, you know, it causes severe burns, um, mucositis, which is actually sores in your mouth, um, excess mucus, um, which is very thick and difficult to swallow and, you know, talk with all the while she's not able to put her teeth in. So she's not really able to eat solid food. Um, and she started feeling the side effects to radiation after about a week. Normally it's around week three. Um, and she had to have it for six weeks. So it just got progressively worse. Um, you know, I met her at the hospital one day because she called me and was like, I think my, my skin transplant, you know, the, the flap that they used from her leg and her arm, um, she was afraid that it was dying because it looked gray and it was really just radiation, just zapping the hell out of it. <laughs> um, when I met her at the doctor's office, her lips were actually peeling and falling off of her face and bleeding and she was shaking and you know we go in to see the doctor and she's like you know is this gonna you know is the flap gonna fall out like and he's like no no this is normal you're fine 
um, you know, you're going to be okay. This is typical. If we told you this before, you wouldn't have agreed to radiation. And he probably wasn't wrong. Uh, and then they slapped a fentanyl patch on her back and sent her home. And that was the, the beginning of her um, being on really, really strong pain meds. Um, so also during the course of this treatment, um, her white blood cell count um, many times was not at the level that they would allow for her to receive her chemo. So she had to take a two week break from treatment, um, which is not hugely uncommon, but it's not ideal when you have microscopic cancer cells in your body and you take a break from treating it. So, um, you know, she finally recovered after a few weeks, was able to finish her treatment um, and then actually start to recover from the treatment. Um, you know, she was starting to be able to eat a little bit again. Um, and, and the other thing too, with the radiation, it, it changed her taste buds. So it zaps the taste buds. So you have no saliva. Um, and also the only thing she could taste was salt, even if it was water or candy, it all tasted like salt. So eating for her was really difficult. Um, with head and neck cancer patients, it's very common for them to get a feeding tube, but she declined. <laughs> um, and she probably should have gotten one because she did lose quite a bit of weight. Um, so she finished treatment, um, the month was January. Um, she was doing well enough to celebrate my nephew's birthday in February. Um, she was able to sit at the table and, and have a meal with us, even if it was soft food. Um, and then St. Patrick's Day, the following month, um, I was over for a visit and she was remarking on how sore her shoulder was and she thought maybe she slept weird um and she stretched kind of back like this and she put her hand on her rib and she said that's funny and she took my hand and put it on her rib and there was a grape sized tumor on her rib and i just knew at that point i mean she knew also um but she chose to not chose to, I think she had no choice, but to kind of live in a little bit of denial from that point forward. She didn't really wanna acknowledge what it was, even though she knew. Um, and I said, we're calling the doctor tomorrow. Um, and over the course of, you know, maybe probably about two weeks, she just was so deconditioned, she could barely get out of the house. Um, they did bring her in for a biopsy of the lesion on her rib. Um, and I think they had also done a liver biopsy from something they saw on a scan. Um, it took her an hour and a half to get out of the house. My dad had to practically carry her to the car. Um, and so I met them at the hospital and it was a long day at the hospital. Even the nurse was crying when she saw her because of how sick she looked. Um, and then, you know, the results came back about a week later that it was um, metastasis from the oral cancer. And, you know, in that time, we were actually like, maybe it's the breast cancer um, metastasized and we have other treatment options. There's way more treatment options for the breast cancer. And the, like, you know, you're in dire straits when you're hoping and praying that it's breast cancer and not not oral cancer. It's wild the, you know, the, where your where your mind will go. But 
Um, and so at that point, we had to decide on hospice. Um, there were no other options for, for her treatment. And um, you could not say the word hospice to my mother. So I lied and said it was the visiting nurse. Um, you know, they came to the house and she, she pointed at the door and, and kicked them out. Um, not in a mean way. She was like, thanks for coming, but I don't, I don't need you. Um, and then, you know, within a day or two, we had to ask them to come back. Um, she couldn't get out of bed. She, um, you know, at nighttime was having a lot of agitation. Uh, my dad and I, uh, were the primary caregivers to her during this time. I was very, fortunate to have an employer that just said go do what you got to do and paid me the whole time I didn't have to fill out FMLA paperwork it was honestly a, an absolute blessing that I I worked for this person at that time because I couldn't imagine having to deal with those other hurdles while trying to care for a dying parent um so there were a few few nights that my dad and I were up with her all night she would cry and then um say you know I have to go to the bathroom I have to pee I have to pee and she would try and get out of the bed and we would have to follow behind her with a chair so she didn't fall walking to the bathroom because she had no she was so weak but she refused to go um you know we had depends on her she refused to go in them it was just like this even if she wasn't aware, you know, she just, her body knew that like, you don't pee when you're laying in bed. Right. And we were like, just like, we'll change you. We'll clean you like, please. And it, she couldn't. Um, but you know, it, it progressed pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, within a week she was in a hospital bed and, um, my parents' house is on a lake and it's, beautiful picture window in the living room so we made sure the bed was facing the window so she could see the lake um but you know towards the end she didn't know where she was she thought she was in the hospital and that like broke my heart that she didn't know that she was at home with all of us um and I think the hardest part of the hospice experience with her or not even the hospice experience just the dying experience with her was that she was not able to emotionally and mentally be in the reality. There was a lot of um, denial talk, like not like, oh, this isn't happening to me, but like, oh, we're going to go to the Cape this summer. I can't wait to go to the beach. Like, you know, talking about things as if there was no, you know, no end uh, impending, you know, uh, and that was hard because it didn't allow us to openly grieve in front of her. So I would have to, you know, hide in the bathroom and sob by myself and then wipe my face off and make sure when I went back out, it didn't look like I was crying. Um, and, you know, just kind of circling back to the codependence that we had on each other um you know when she was on hospice my dad my dad is the fidgeter he's the one that has to be busy doing things he was gardening he was cooking for us he was going food shopping he was doing and I was the one that was at the bed 24 7 because I could not be away from her if I stepped out of the house my anxiety was you know 110 percent 
Um, but you know, I had to shower every few days and the days that I, I showered, I remember asking my dad, can you sit with mom? Because I'm going to be in the shower and he'd be like, okay. And he'd sit and I'd be in the shower and I'd get out. The door was right next to the bed and I could hear her calling my name. And I was, you know, beside myself, like rushing and I'd go out and my dad wouldn't be sitting there because he couldn't he couldn't this that was how he coped during the time he couldn't sit there it was and to me at the time it was interpreted as you know cold-hearted and uncaring and she just needed you to be there with her um that's obviously just me projecting but he did what he had to do um and I can't blame or fault anybody for coping the way that they cope but it did feel like a lot of the pressure was was on me at the time. Um, and I honestly, I probably kicked people out. I actually know for a fact I kicked some people out <laughs> um, if I thought that they were gonna upset her, you know? Um, she had a fractured relationship with her brother and he had gotten wind that she was dying and he walked right in the house one day. And um, I was so afraid of her seeing him and being confronted with the fact that he was coming to see her because she was dying, that I wouldn't let him see her. Cause I, she couldn't, she couldn't say the words I'm dying. She couldn't acknowledge it verbally. Um, and I didn't want him to upset her either because they had, you know, of course, looking back, I'm like, who am I to be the gatekeeper here? You know, I was just trying to protect her. So I don't have a lot of re regrets of how um, I cared for her in the end. Um, very little, if if anything, but it, it really is that I, you know, probably could have allowed them to have a moment with each other. Um, but who knows? Nobody does it perfect. Nobody knows how it's going to how it's going to happen. But um, so, you know, within her last couple of days, Typical, if anybody's gone through the hospice experience, there's the rally where all of a sudden they're sitting up and they're eating and they're talking and you think, holy shit, they're, they're not dying anymore. Um, it's just a cruel joke, uh, but also a wonderful opportunity to be able to share memories and say everything to each other that you wanted to say. And we never let, you know, an hour go by without saying, I love you. And hugging and kissing and, you know, sharing funny stories. And um, there were those moments where she did allow herself to acknowledge what was happening and cry. And we would cry with her and tell her it was gonna be okay. And then she would suck the tears right back up into her eyes and it wasn't happening anymore. Um, and that really was a, a big challenge. Um, I remember quite vividly, um, when she was still not quite in the hospital bed yet, um, but was bed bound, um, you know, we were watching little women together actually, <laughs> um, where I get my name and, um, you know, she, it was one of those moments where she was accepting or willing to be in the moment um, and she looked at me with tears and said, I'm sorry. And um, I couldn't 
I was like, what are you, what are you sorry for? And I said, I'm sorry. Um, and I was sorry for not giving her the moments that a mother and daughter, those milestone moments. And, you know, for example, I went back to school when I was 30 um, and I hadn't graduated from college yet. And so she missed a college graduation and I had not gotten married yet. And so she missed my wedding and I didn't have children and she missed being a grandmother to my kids. And those were big things that I felt I robbed her of, um, but also robbed myself of um, because I did things on a different timeline than most people do or than the traditional norm is, I guess. Um, and at the time, I, I didn't really feel the pressure to do all of those things um, because, you know, I, who thinks that their mother is going to die when you're 34, you know, even though I had been, <laughs> been living with the notion of her dying at some point from age 12, um, you just, she always kind of rebounded. It was kind of like, oh, we're getting, we're, we got lucky again, you know, um, you know, so that was really kind of a, a sweet moment that we had with each other, but also pretty pretty sad and I'm glad we had it looking back on it anyway um so you know I got married without her and um I think I kind of followed in her footsteps with the denial thing um because I couldn't possibly think of like letting myself get into this um, really, really sad place on like the happiest day of your life. You know, um, we honored her during the ceremony. Um, I had a photo of her and I together on my bouquet. Um, and the dress I wore, she had actually seen me wear before. Um, when she was um, bed bound, I had arranged for a wedding dress shopping with a friend of mine so that I could try on some dresses and um, bring some photos back to her of me in a wedding dress. And um, so the dress that I chose to show her the photo of is actually the dress that I bought when I got married, which was, you know, six years later. Um, so I feel like I covered some mother-daughter bases there with, with the wedding um, the best that I could. Um, and um, the the song I danced to uh, with my dad was um, a song that we played for her when she was on hospice. So it was um, "Here Comes the Sun." <laughs> so um, yeah, so the ten year anniversary of her death was this past April. So um, every year on her anniversary, we drive down to Cape Cod and um, go to the beach that we grew up um, vacationing at. It was her favorite place. And, um, you know, it's it's cold and it's windy and sometimes raining, but it's the only place that I feel um, peaceful when honoring her life and death. Um, I have tried to skip it a few years if the weather doesn't look great and it ends up being a day where I just feel a lot of anxiety and like I'm not I'm not doing 
the right thing. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Um, you know, there's no, really no other way that I um, think honors her than, than being in that place. Um, so I guess, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of where things have ended. Um, you know, even 10 years later, still struggling with being without a mom and we're always going to be going through life events that we wish our mother was there for, even on the most mundane days, I still say, oh, I got to call mom. So much has happened that I have to fill her in on. There's that like 10 second fleeting thought, like, wow, she's, she doesn't know so much. She never got to meet my husband. She doesn't know about my you know, I changed careers after she died. That's actually something I didn't even mention, which I could probably go on for another hour about. Um, I'm not the same person that I was when she died. And I feel like sometimes she doesn't know me anymore. And that is something that I struggle with a little bit. Um, but I know no matter what, she would be insanely proud of who I am today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I ask how your relationship has been with your father since then? Well, um, yeah. Or you can say no. Oh, no. I'm (laughs) just. I'm just wondering, you know, because when you when you process grief differently and then there's no your mom is gone and his wife is gone. Absolutely. Just talking about that whole role shift and change in relationships and stuff I was just wondering absolutely actually I there's there's quite a bit I could say I could say about that um so my dad and I we I wouldn't say we weren't close but my mom was my counter person she you know we were those it was almost like we were twins you know when something goes wrong your twin can be across the country and you know that's how we were we just it was we were very in tune with each other so um I spoke with my mother every day on the phone at at least once if not more than that um so whenever I called the house if my dad answered hang on I'll get mom you know um so my dad's very much an introvert and um my mother was the social person that arranged their, you know, social life, which was not super robust. They didn't really do much um, in their older years. Um, but as the years have gone on, um, we've certainly gotten closer. He's opened up a little bit more. He's open to doing more things. Um, but we still don't talk on the phone. You know, I don't, every now and then we'll we'll chat but it'll be about like oh are you coming down this weekend i'll make dinner kind of thing um i think this it's been a real struggle for him um losing her um they were both 62 and just you know thought that they were going to spend their retirement years together and um just kind of having to reinvent himself he you know when they were married 40 years and what a what a change in a very short amount of time too it was less than a year from her diagnosis to when she died and you know and she died within two months of us thinking she was done with treatment and on the road to recovery so you you don't have a lot of time to kind of process those things um I think he's still trying to figure things out um 10 years later but um it's a it's a good relationship, but it's, will never be. And I think he understands that will never be the level of closeness that, you know, me and my mom were, yeah. and that's okay too. 
Right. Because you weren't that before, like you said. So right, right, right. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh. I do, I do when you were saying like the, you know, losing you're losing the same person, but it's a different person to you. That yeah. actually um was more apparent to me with me and my sister. Um, and it took a couple of years of therapy for me to actually understand that and be okay with that. Um, I think when you first lose someone, you're just, I don't want to say selfish, but you are, you have to be, um, because you're really only thinking about how do I get through this? Um, and my sister is just a very different person than me. She's not really emotionally outspoken. Um, she doesn't share her feelings very often. She's very much more like my dad. Um, and I really struggled with that because I needed someone that was going to be exactly like me. I needed my mother to yes. help me get <laughs> through um, losing her. And I think I just desperately wanted her to be that person. And I think I thought she was going to be that person. And I didn't understand how she could just, you know, not be going through it the same way that I was she really she really wasn't and I'm not to say she wasn't suffering and she probably is still um especially having two kids she had a young one um during that time he was one year old um and and her older son um was incredibly close with my mother um so she had them to think about too and I think she I think she actually buried herself in her kids instead of having to really kind of confront her own grief and feelings about it um my interpretation I guess of it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um so before we started recording you were saying that there was a couple of things like since it's been 10 years that you've that you've discovered that you wanted to make sure that you shared with people who were listening yeah, um, just what I've kind of learned about grief over the years um, is it's not like it is in textbooks or those inspirational poems you come across. Um, it's individual for everyone. People are going to respond to it differently. Um, it's not a linear process. It will rear its ugly head in the most unexpected moments. Um 10 years later, I'm still grieving and some days are harder than others. Some days are really good. I don't, you know, it, it's never going to not be there, but it's not in, in my face every day. Um, and one thing that I think that's really helped me, um, was finding a purpose in, life, whether it's relationship, job, hobby, you know, volunteer, whatever it is, when you have purpose, it, it makes life more meaningful. And it makes if it's a purpose that's in honor of someone that died, um, it makes their loss uh, more meaningful. And I, I really struggled with purpose personally when my mother died because she was my purpose she was sick for so long I was her emotional counterpart and when she wasn't there anymore 
I was like, well, what do I do now? Who do I take care of? Who, you know, and I, I had kind of struggled a little bit with my professional life, like figuring out what the heck I wanted to do. I had, you know, was working in finance at the time. I was enrolled in school um, for hospitality because I wanted to do, um, you know, travel arrangement and um, event planning. And after my mother died, I, I spoke with my advisor and I was like, how do I get into healthcare? Like, what do I, where do I go from here? Um, and what actually happened was I emailed my mother's surgeon and I said, any tips for someone like me who wants to get into patient advocacy? And he said, oh yeah, I'll put you in touch with so-and-so. And, um, three months later, I was working as a patient navigator at the hospital that my mother had her cancer care at. Um, and it completely changed my life. It, it helped me um, create a legacy through her for myself. Um, it's given me purpose and, um, you know, it, it changed my career. It, it, I, I can't even, <laughs> I, I can't even necessarily put into words um, what that's done for me. It's incredibly cathartic to work with other cancer patients. I realize that could be triggering for some people. Some people hate hospitals, can never go in them again. I've always had a, for some reason, a draw to healthcare and being in a hospital. Um, so I actually used to work with my mother's surgeons and help patients through their cancer journey, um, for many years after she died. And, um, and now I work in palliative care. So <laughs> really, yeah, yeah. That's for people who don't know that's, that's hospice, right? It's pre-hospice. Okay. Yeah. So palliative care is, um, a supportive care service for people with a serious illness, um, and it can be at any stage of disease, as long as there's active symptoms um, that need management, as well as goals of care conversations. And so you could be stage two GI cancer and going through radiation, and you can get palliative care because you'll have symptoms from your disease and from the treatment that you're experiencing. Um, and then goals of care conversations, everybody with a serious illness should have, you know, what, you know, where do you, what are your goals? What, you know, do you see yourself doing, you know, how to make treatment decisions and, um, you know, sorry, I have a fire department okay. next door. <laughs> um, so part of my job, I, I work as the liaison on the inpatient consult service for palliative care at my hospital. And um, just very light conversations with patients before the medical providers go in and see them. And one of the one of the main questions we ask is, you know, given what you know about your illness, what are you hoping for? And it can be anything. Some people say, I'm hoping for a cure. Some people will say, I want to make it to my daughter's wedding in six months or my my nephew's wife is pregnant. I want to you know, I'm hoping to get to that. And it's, so it's kind of a broad question. It's open to interpretation and, and I'll try not to give examples because I don't want to lead people into an answer. And some people don't really even know what to say at that point, but I think it's so important to continue to ask those questions to people throughout their illness, because those goals are going to change. 
they're going to change right along with every, you know, test result they get. If they have progression, your goals are going to change. And it's important to know that. And it's important for people to think about that um, in themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty passionate about palliative <laughs> care. And I wish that my mother had it. And yeah, I'm like, is that available everywhere? It is. It is. It's, it's really? standard. It's standard of care in hospitals. Um, it's not necessarily available to everyone um, in an outpatient setting, but in the hospital, anybody can request a palliative care consult if they have a serious illness. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yes, you're totally speaking my language because <laughs> I went with. I was journeyed a lot with my sister through her through her um, cancer journey, and my niece and I talk about that all the time. About like you need an advocate and you need yes. somebody who is not emotion. We were emotionally involved, but we still yes. did our best to try to keep track of because there's so much so going much. on. Um, and there were times when she could have most certainly used some help with dealing with the symptoms that she was yeah um, and a lot of times I feel like you get put on all this medication from here and there and everywhere and that I don't I was always like is there one person looking at this whole thing because exactly. I think this is negating this is causing this which the neuropathy and the this mm -hmm. and the that it was just huh that's healthier so, for you man <laughs> so you just learned me you just learned me something because I always thought palli palliative care was hospice so, so hospice hospice is when you're not receiving life treatment. prolonging treatment right. right so you can receive palliative care all the way up until death if you choose not to go to hospice but the minute you discontinue treatment for if it's cancer you are hospice eligible if you have a um life expectancy of six months or less less mm -hmm. palliative care you can get for years you could, yes. I, I know some patient breast cancer patients can live for 10 years on, on treatment and they can be eligible for palliative care for that entire time. So yeah, okay. well, they're the experts in pain and symptom management. Really. Yeah. yeah. So it's important huh. that people know that and know the difference. Um, is one of the parts of my job is palliative care education to patients because, um, you know, what we run into at our hospital, which is very common, you know, across the US, um, either you think palliative care is hospice or you've never heard of palliative care before. So you either think it's the wrong thing or you have never heard of it. And so my my initial goal when I meet with patients is making sure that they have a full understanding of what palliative care means and how we can help them and support them. And also educating the medical providers. There's a lot of doctors in the hospital that think we're the hospice team. And so we educate the medical staff too. This is how we can help the patients. This is how we can help you help the patients. You know, we make recommendations and, and support the medical team too. So yeah. And I love that goals of care. That's yeah. amazing. Oh yeah. That's amazing. I may it's... have to have you back on and we'll just talk about this because I could go on forever. <laughs> yeah. It's super important. It, super it really important. is. It really is. And I think, you know, it's important that, that the public is educated on this, that they can advocate for themselves and asking for it, that families can ask for it. Um, and then once palliative care is involved, they can advocate for the patient too. One of the things I always say to patients is I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I don't know anything about your illness. So 
tell me what you know. It's a good way to assess their understanding of, of their illness. Um, and tell me what you want the doctors to know that you don't feel like you can tell them or you haven't told them. Like, I want you to know that I will be your voice in times that you don't feel like you have one. Because, you know, especially in a teaching hospital, you have 10 doctors coming in. Like I said, morning rounds, you wake up and they're surrounded around your bed around five o'clock in the morning. And they're talking at each other over the patient yeah. in the bed. Um, they might ask a handful of questions. They don't give you really, a, they might give you an opportunity to ask questions, but you don't feel like you have the opportunity to ask questions. And they just woke you up realistically <laughs> from a night of being interrupted every two hours for labs. So it's not a great setting the way the healthcare system is set up. And so I think palliative care specifically gives patients those opportunities to be heard um, and to advocate for them. So I think it's a really important role. I 100% agree. 100% <laughs> agree. Wow. All right. Well, so I usually wrap up the podcast with if there's a final tip you want to share, or if there's something, you know, something that you would still like to say. Before yeah, we... I mean, I think just kind of circling back on that, that grief, um, kind of commentary that I had, um, you know, just be kind to yourself, be gentle with yourself. Um, if you feel guilty because you feel like you're crying too much about it, don't. Um, if you feel like, why can't I cry about this anymore? You know, what's wrong with me? Don't, don't worry about it. It's, we're all just trying to get through it. Um, lean on people when you, when you can, if you have, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a hard time with asking for help. Um, and I know I'm not alone in that. And I think if you reached out to someone and just said, I want to talk about my mom today, just do it. Or, you know, go to social media for that. There's always going to be people that, that you know, it resonates with, especially this forum here. You know, I know that, um, actually, I think how you and I got connected, I think I might have tagged you in my 10-year anniversary post about my mom. Um, follow um, on social media, other pages that align with what you're going through. There's a, a girl that I was directed to by actually a friend of mine, um, and her page is Grief Hungry, and she will share recipes um, that she cooks that make her um, feel closer to her dad. She had lost her dad about four years ago. She's also local to Massachusetts, so that's, I think, how I got connected to her. Um, but she's four years out and she still talks about, you know, I'm sad today and I'm going to make this macaroni and cheese, you know, like don't feel bad because it doesn't, it doesn't go away overnight. It doesn't go away in a year. Um, it just, your grief is, you know, keeping you connected to the person that you lost. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 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 Great. Well, thank you so much for being here, Amy. I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story. And if nobody else gets anything from today, I certainly got educated. So <laughs> thank I you really for appreciate it. Uh -huh. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in sharing your story on the podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.